0: Uh, greetings, dear listeners. We're going to get right into it. This week, we have my, um, my boss, my friend, Arthur Brooks, the president of the American Enterprise Institute. Arthur is, if you just go by his undergraduate career, he's the only other person at AEI who today doesn't have the academic qualifications to be hired as an intern or a research assistant here. And uh, we're, I, I don't know what we're going to talk about, but we'll talk about a bunch of it. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Again, thank you to everybody who subscribed, and thank you to everybody who's left comments at iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. It makes a big difference, and I really appreciate it, and we'll do more of this at the end. Thanks very much. going to jump right into it. Uh, we have this week a, a guest, a friend. I should do full disclosure, he's also my boss here at the American Enterprise Institute, <laughs> and, and I, or as I like to call him, the dude from my checks. And uh, he is also, uh, um, and so I just with that in mind, with that context in mind, I do want to say not only are you a powerful man, you're a handsome man. Well, I thank you very much. For <laughs> that. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate it. <that. laughs> We played on our, our opening music, some music from you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, back, back from the old days. Back from the old days when you were playing, uh, when you were a professional. Fr- oh, so I should. guess people should know a little bit more. Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute, formerly an, an actual academic type person at Syracuse. Mm-hmm. and And the Rand Corporation before that, which is where you got your PhD. Right. And before that, he was a professional French horn player, um, mostly playing in the Barcelona Philharmonic?
1: Yeah, I played the Barcelona Symphony. I taught at a music conservatory for a while, but for the first six years of my career, which started pursuant to flunking out of college, mm-hmm. and was a chamber music group called the Annapolis Brass Quintet, based in Maryland. I traveled about seven, about seven months a year. And during that time, I spent a couple of years on the road with this guy named Charlie Bird, who's a guitar player. So anybody who's listening to us who's super into jazz knows that Charlie Bird with the saxophonist Stan gets bought, brought bossa nova to America right. in the late 1950s. And so he was known as a bossa nova guitar player. And we did a couple albums with him and traveled around
0: with him, and, and, and I, uh, you know, learned a lot about how to be a jazzer during that time. So um, the first question I have is, what's wrong with American horns? Why did you have to play a French horn?
1: Just because that's <laughs> just sort of a fruity thing to do. I, th- I think it's kind of a, you know, these musicians are so unpatriotic, you know how they are.
0: No, but seriously, what is the difference between a French horn and, like, a trumpet or a trombone or any of those things?
1: The brass instruments are all pretty similar insofar as that you buzz your lips into a mouthpiece, and it goes through the tube, and it comes out amplified out the
0: other end. And Uh and if you're good at it, it doesn't sound terrible. And they have valves to, you know, to change the pitches. Now, my my brother played—I'm using air quotes—played the trumpet when I was a kid, and it was just— he practiced a lot, and it was very loud, and the spit valve was a yeah. subject of much fascination. Yeah,
1: absolutely, right? and, okay. and, and, and derision. It's, uh, the, the trumpet is sh- less tubing, so it's higher pitched, and uh-huh. the tuba is uh, the largest amount of tub- tubing, and the French horn is someplace in the middle, known for its mellow qualities sitting in the back of the orchestra. Can you passably play them all? I can I can make sounds on all of them. Well, I can, I can make sounds on all of yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can play scales on all of them and okay. all that, but I can actually, uh, particularly when I was in the business, could play music actually on the French horn. Okay. It's an interesting way to make a living, I have to say. It's not, you know, it's not something that captures the imagination of most people. And um, when did you start playing? I started on the violin when I was four. Uh I started on the piano when I was five, and I started on the French horn when I was eight.
0: Were your parents very musical people?
1: Yeah, my mother was an amateur violinist and pianist. She was my, she was actually my accompanist growing up. My dad was a math professor, but it was also pretty musical and they had this they had this when I, when I had some aptitude for classical music, they decided that that was the be all and end all that I was going to be a classical musician, so they forced me to practice and what you always do to kids who have classical music abilities and right. and that's all i did man i mean it was it was everything I played hours and hours a day all the way through my childhood, entering competitions, taking you know private lessons, traveling to you know play with ensembles and 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 the result was i i mean by the time I was in high school, I was sure I was going to be
0: a professional French horn player. And sure enough, that's how it turned out. So on the road, I mean, was it, forget the music part, right? Forget your artistry. Was it fun, like, on the road with other kids mm-hmm. who are all into the same sort of thing? Or was it just a large number of atomized nerds who happened to be in the same room together? <laughs> it was fun. I mean, I liked, I was super into music. Right. And, and it, there was Girls, uh-huh.
1: and that was good. So, and and, and I had actually had some pretty good friends. And the, the brass players, by the way, are actually not that nerdy. They're the yeah, yeah, beer yeah, yeah, drinking, yeah. red cheeked peasants of the orchestra. Right. I mean, the nerds are they're they're doing other. They're playing the violin or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the percussionists all eating string playing. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, then you got the guys playing the drums in the back. They're you know vandals and Visigoths back right. there. So you've got uh, it's there's, there's cultures inside orchestras. You have to understand. So that was, yeah, it was great. And by the time I was doing it professionally, it was outstanding. I mean, I was traveling around making my life. I was also making $14,000 a year. And you know, not that there's anything wrong with that. No, 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 no. We're gonna get to that. I mean, that's not. It's not. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's. if you can make more, it's better. But right. I, I was also driving in a van with five guys yeah. uh, all over the country. One time, drove straight through from Baltimore to San Francisco for a gig. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So that's good pretty. Drive. That's glamorous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was yeah. it smell good in the van?
0: It was great. Yeah. I yeah. once, just to give some context, I once with two friends from college drove to uh, Mardi Gras. In New Orleans, and the three of us couldn't find a hotel room, so we spent four or five days sleeping, the three of us, in a Buick Skylark. Um, but that's another story for another time. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, it smelled good in there too. So oh,
1: one time, I was actually in uh, had a concert. This is gives you an idea of the mentality of professional musicians. All guys. We were in um, Omaha, and I was playing a concert in Omaha, and I was talking to somebody at the reception afterwards, and they they said, what do you got next? I "I was like, I have to get to Ireland. I have a concert in Ireland. They said, well, when is it? I said, it's the day after tomorrow. I said, well, you're in Omaha. Are you flying out of Omaha? I said, no, we're flying out of Kennedy Airport. <laughs> and <laughs> I looked at my friends, and we literally just threw our instruments into the back of the van and <laughs> tore it in the parking lot and drove straight through something like 22 hours or something to get to the airport and barely made our flight. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I was um, planning for you. And
0: so what made you want to quit that glamorous life?
1: <laughs> I actually, so I was playing in this quintet and traveling around. Um, I, I moved to Barcelona because I met a girl. Uh-huh. I didn't actually meet the girl in Barcelona. I was on tour in France, and I'm, I was on this step out on stage, and, and I'm playing, and I look out in the crowd, and there's this beautiful girl s- smiling at me, which was, you know, not all that uh-huh. frequent in a thing. So I made a mental note, I was gonna talk to her after the concert, and, and I made a beeline for her after the concert and started chatting her up. Turns out she spoke not one word of English, and she wasn't French, we were in Dijon. Uh-huh. She, turns out she was uh, an, ex- an exchange student from Barcelona, and, you know, I asked her if she'd go out to dinner with me, and we made hand
0: gestures. So you spoke and... some Spanish.
1: No, no, none. No, 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 no. I mean, we had no words in common, zero huh. words in common, not worded. I didn't speak any Spanish, or Catalan, which is the, the native language of Barcelona, she didn't speak a word of English. And so the result is through cognates and translators uh-huh. and, you know, monosyllabic grunts as we ate dinner, um, got to know her a little bit. And I went home from, I went I was living in New York City at the time, I came back and I called my dad and I said, I think I met the girl I'm gonna marry. And he says wow, that's great. I can't wait to meet her. And he, I was 24. <laughs> he says, and I said, well, the problem is actually a couple of different problems. Yeah, one is that she's on... Small problems. Little small them. problems. She's not, she lives on the side of the Atlantic. Um, She doesn't speak one word of English and she has no idea that, that she's going to marry me yet. But I set to work on this project and uh-huh. and over the next year, you know, I went and visited her in Barcelona and, and uh, got to know her a little bit better and then I quit my job and took a job in the Barcelona Symphony and moved there and then and uh, to show a big commitment. Sure enough, two years later, she actually... uh. She married me. Now we have three teenage kids.
0: Um, but I'm not here to tell you my problems. <laughs> um, I'm a. That's a great story. I, I, it, 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 I think it I, it beats my uh, meet cute with my wife, but mine's more Washington think tanky. Because uh, <laughs> you
1: met her in our conference room, or something. no, right? no, I, an
0: intern at AEI. She worked in the same building. She worked in the AI building back in the mm-hmm. '90s, and I knew her as the hot girl from the elevator, and she didn't know me as random guy number 37. And then I wrote something for the Wall Street Journal that she really liked. And she, at the time, she was working on the fifth floor with Ken Weinstein at Philanthropy Magazine. And she was an editor there. And she said, oh, this is a great piece in the journal. And Ken says, oh, I know that guy. And so a couple months later, they she introdu- he introduced us. But Jess was dating some muckety-muck guy who we won't out here. And <laughs> I was dating somebody else as well. And I was quite smitten with the fair Jessica, as I often used to call her. I still call her. And and it we just would have ended at a nice conversation. But then the next day, it got back to Ken Weinstein that I was romantically interested in Jessica. And so he called me in a panic to talk me out of it. And he says, hey, I hear you like Jessica. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she's great. He goes, oh, I think she's great too. <laughs> but you should just know she's way out of your league and that so enraged my lizard brain, mm. masculine sense mm. that it became it a two- stimulated your amygdala. Exactly, and it became a long term quest as well. And uh, how long term? I wooed her for several years, wore her for down several years. Yeah, yeah. And, That's uh, very Washington. She would contest some of this, but uh, it's okay case she's not listening to your podcast. No, no. Well, actually, she does, which is a big problem, and she hates it when I mention her. So I mean, I'm gonna hey, be Jessica, in let's <laughs> talk about Jessica some more. <laughs> and. Uh, but uh, yeah, no. So that all worked out. And I, years, so yeah. I got my wife through the Wall Street Journal. So there you go. That's great. That's a, that's
1: from the not from the WAN ads, the uh, of the Wall Street Journal. It's funny, you know. Since I've been working here at AEI, we have this. Um, you know, we have 250 full time people here. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty big organization, and and it's a barbell thing where it's people older than me, and, and increasingly not. So much older than me, and right, there's are, a ceiling there, right? Yeah, yeah. kind of yeah. like <laughs> death, death, <laughs> heaven. So, the, and then there's the people who are younger, like yeah. way younger, yeah, uh, in their in their late 20s and early 30s. And and I've noticed, you know, I've gotten to know these a lot of these young people. 85 percent of AEI is newer than me because I've been right. I'm starting my 10th year as president, and I get to know this a lot of these young guys and. Uh, and you know they'll be dating a girl, and, and I'll say, "So how's it going with that girl you've been going out with?" And 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 they'll say, "Oh, it's just fine." How long have you guys been going out? And they'll say, "Like eight years." This is <laughs> Washington D.C. There's a lot of that, and, and and they'll say, "You know, what do you think I had to do?" <laughs> I, say, I know exactly what you should do. You should get down on one knee, man. Yeah, and yeah it, it's I... uh, but this in Washington D.C. In, in these pretty highly mobile and and. And ambitious professional environments, people tend to go on and on and on and on.
0: Yeah, because it's like extended job interviews, kinda. Yeah, and that's one of the pieces of advice I always would give people: is that if you if if, if you're pretty sure you found the one, go ahead and and take care of business. And because it's having kids earlier is a good idea, getting married earlier is a good idea. But I want to sort of switch. Oh, we, we we could probably figure out a good segue for this, but let's just let's just crash through it. Or we could just do some bump music and come back from an ad for.
1: Something. What are we advertising? <laughs> uh,
0: we're good on advertisements for this week. Um, the American Enterprise Institute. Before the end of the year. That's right. Th- that's right. If, if you're inclined to give, you could give the, to the American Enterprise Institute, and that would uh, um, maybe would improve my parking situation here. It, but anyway, it would get you into heaven. So that's not theological advice, by the way. I, because I, uh, that would violate our tax status. It would violate our tax status. <laughs> so it would also interfere with my spiritual life. Okay. <laughs> Well, all right, so you bring up your spiritual life. And one of your core areas of research, which ties into getting married and having kids and all of that kind of stuff, is uh, happiness, right? Yeah. And what made you want to go into studying happiness in the first place? So I, before I came to AI, I was a, I was a professor at Syracuse University. You mentioned that, at the Maxwell
1: School of Public Affairs. And I was teaching <clears throat> public policy analysis. And... When I came up for and got my promotion to full professor, and by that time I had tenure, I had this kind of existential question. What's the purpose of having lifetime employment? Now, you know, everybody listening knows their professors, knows how the situation works. You're a tenure professor, you could kill a dude and not get fired. Yeah. And so what most people or what a lot of people use that protection for is to become less productive and to be, product, be protected from, from, from less Productivity. That's wrong. I mean, the whole idea of the tenure system was to be able to do new things mm-hmm. with relative impunity, to, to say daring things. I thought, huh, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my career as a researcher. And at that time, I was completely convinced I was going to be a researcher and a scholar and an intellectual for the rest of my life. And creative work is what I like the most. And so I said, well, what could I do that, was, that answers the question that I most want to know the answer to and that other people want to know the answer to as well? Clearly, people want to know how to be happier. So I went into the... I'm a behavioral economist to begin with. I went into the business of, of well-being, of, of life satisfaction, of flourishing, how to live a good life of human dignity, basically. And, and I started writing books on that subject. And I tell you, it's never bored me. Mm-hmm. And I've learned a lot. And I've actually changed a lot of things in my own life as
0: a result. So what are the... I mean, I've heard you do this before, but it's going to set me up to where I want to go. What are the things... You, you have a checklist of the things that give us happiness that that contribute to our hap- happiness in the in the proper sense what's the greek word eudaimonia uh,
1: it's uh, it means it's a good life well lived right aristotle talked about this right it's not just as opposed to hedonism right so what are the it's five or six things it's but... four it's four so basically here's how to think about it in a nutshell okay so here's happiness 101 in in 3 minutes the short course right <clears throat> about half of your happiness is genetic It would come so your mother really did make you unhappy right. <laughs> in a very real way. Um, it's sitting on your genome, your proclivity toward, toward mood, right. effectively good or Some bad. Some people are born <laughs> miserable, bad. Yeah, and if, exactly right. And if your parents are g- gloomy, grumpy people who tend to, by the way, to be attracted to each other, so you have homogamy on happiness, mm-hmm. you're going to tend to be an unhappier person. That's your baseline. Like 48%. How do we get that is from these identical twin studies where right. identical twins uh, are separated at birth and and then they're brought back together and given personality studies at about age 40 and but not
0: for the purpose of the personality study right this is all... not some <laughs> evil scientist thing because these these twin studies are fascinating and yes. they sound like the kind of deranged, creepy stuff that people like you would do if you had no ethical framework. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's right. not why they were done.
1: I mean, I appreciate the fact that you just assumed that I do have an ethical framework, <laughs> Jonah. But i heard
0: you talk about your ethical framework.
1: I know. It's right. So <laughs> blah, blah, ethics, blah, blah. Anyway, so, yeah, in these studies, what happened was this is, this is usually between the 1930s and 1960s when, when women had twins, identical twins, and it was an unwanted pregnancy, the children would be born and given up for adoption. And typically, they would separate the twins at birth, and they would be brought up in different families. Now, there's pretty straightforward statistical tools you can get these kids back together to net out the parts of their personalities that are nature and the parts that are environment, um, environment and and and. Uh, and, and genetics, and so the result of that is we could figure out, you know, what they do and how they act and how they feel and, and what their futures are actually likely to be on the basis of, of the shared environment versus the genetics, and about half of their happiness turns out to be genetic. Okay, another 40% or so is circumstantial. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what's going on in your life? You know, Jonah gets this huge new contract from Fox News or National Review or <laughs> the American Enterprise Institute. Uh. And his star is rising, which, by the way, it is because when you see his new book, it's going to blow, blow everybody's mind. Yeah, yeah. And, uh it's going to be great. And, and, and that's going to make you really, really happy. <clears throat> and then something's going to come along within the next few months that's going to bring you down a little bit. And so the slings and arrows of, sure. of life. 40%. The last 10% is based on four factors that are entirely under your control, Jonah. Mm-hmm. And and that doesn't sound like very much, but if I basically said you have a 10% likelihood of not dying of some dread disease, if you do four things, you would do those four things all day long. Depending on what they are. Well, know. for sure, indeed. That's yeah, a mean, good point. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
0: yeah. E- eating the liver of an innocent old lady I wouldn't necessarily do, but...
1: Not necessarily, but I have I, to know that's why, more. I, that's why I need yeah. more data. Yeah, anyway, right. but, but you get my point. Uh, yeah. Okay, so these things are relatively innocuous. You have a, a happiness portfolio to get your full 10%. And by the way, this also changes your luck, so the 40% of the circumstantial tends to change as well, endogenously with this as mm-hmm. years go by. You have to do four things in in proportion. You have to think about four things and add into the account of four things. Faith, family, Friendships and work; mm-hmm. those are the things. And the biggest problem that almost everybody listening to us is, you know, you've got a lot of prof- pretty successful professionals listening to us because everybody knows that the remnant is the preferred podcast of hedge fund billionaires. That's everywhere. right. That's right. That there's an, an overemphasis on the on the work part of the happiness portfolio, and we tend to, especially men, especially middle aged men, we tend to marginalize the first three parts: faith, family, and friendships. What you need is to remember... And by the way, when I say faith, I don't mean my faith. I mean, right. I, I invite
0: anybody and everybody to become
1: a Catholic like me, but the the right. data say... Just
0: for the record, listeners, Arthur is winking wildly when he says, I don't necessarily mean my faith. But anyway, we'll let it go. <laughs> uh, uh,
1: this, uh, that's the appropriate disclaimer to that. But it, you know, it's... Uh, the data show that faith is faith, that that, that Jews and Catholics and Muslims and Buddhists who 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 actually seek transcendence through their faith they they tend to get the same levels of life satisfaction, but a super high. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a really super significant thing. So I- even people who pu- who who are looking for secular ethics or looking for systems of transcendence through meditation, whatever, primal screen therapy, Rolfing, mm-hmm. you fill in the blanks, do it seriously, and and you're going to get a lot of juice from this. So this this is I'm not being uh, I'm not being chauvinistic about this. Mm-hmm. The second thing is family, and family is pretty straightforward. Right. Friendships are really important, especially for guys. The loneliest people in America are 60 year old men. Yeah. And the reason is because they've systematically forgotten how to have meaningful male friendships. Yeah. You know, you're, you're really good at work. You got colleagues. You're sociable. Right. <laughs> you're domesticated, basically. Meanwhile, your wife is probably going to be better at having friendships because they're in different social circumstances, typically. And by the time you're 60, the likelihood that your wife is your best friend are 6 out of 10. Right. The likelihood that your wife says that you are her best friend are 3 out of 10. Mm. That's... And that's not necessarily unrequited love, but it, let's, let's call it asymmetric friendship. Right, right, right. And that actually sort of speaks volumes about yeah. what's going on. So it's very important to maintain friendships so that people don't get lonely. And the last thing is sanctifying your ordinary work, turning your ordinary work into a divine thing to do. And the way to do that is real simple. Serve others. The point of work is service. Everything that you do is supposed to serve other people, to bring people to become their best selves as well. If you do those four things, faith, family, Friendships and work, uh, you're going to dominate that 10%. You're going to torque the 40% of circumstances, and you're going to be less focused on the 50% that's sitting on your
0: DNA. A couple small questions, and then I want to ask you a bigger question. So isn't isn't somewhere in there, like, there's there's data that shows that experiences are more highly valued than than Mm -hmm. things, right? Yeah. Um, Is that because the experiences tend to be with other people, so we like experiences with other people? If you go hang gliding alone... It's yeah. not a big deal. You go hang out in with your buddies, it's this amazing adventure, right?
1: Yeah, faith, family, community, and work. Faith, family, friendships, and work. This is all, this is all about stuff that you're doing. With other not people. Not stuff that you're getting. Right. I didn't say that, you know, the, the key thing about work is the money that you get right. from the work so you can buy stuff. That's actually, I mean, pe- people have a tendency to think that because acquisitiveness is something that is one of the reasons that we've been able to pass on our DNA. The idea that I have more, you know, flints and animal skins than Jonah makes it more likely I'm going to be able to take multiple wives. Right. And this is a matter of evolutionary... You made no joke when I said that, by the way. Well, <laughs> it just it, it cut a little too close to home. But anyway, <laughs> go <gone. laughs> on. So, so, the acquisitiveness is something that will help us to propagate the species, but, but Mother Nature couldn't care less right. about your happiness. You have to take care of your own happiness yourself, so you know the the, the 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 biological imperative, the acquisitive biological imperative is is basically use people and love things. Mm. The happiness imperative is to use things and love people, right and when you love people, when that's part of your imperative, you're building your life around that, you're going to tend to value experiences more highly than things, and that's part of the happiness uh, equation
0: okay so. Uh, this is a pretty good setup for where I want to go with this. Um and I know you had a place you were going, man. Yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah, yeah. I'm so we're not we're, set up here. we're not no 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 no. We're not going to do um Yes, we, you can have a raise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was going to that's, that's later. <laughs> we're going to um we don't do a lot of rank punditry here, you know, right. and so and I don't want to talk to you too much about politics, but the, We do rank policy now. <laughs> that's that's right. That's right. I mean, I'm I'm an outlier around here cuz I actually do punditry, which means I can make, you know, the, you know, a pundit in So you fit, actually, when I think about it, you fit much more of the definition of a pundit and its original meaning from India, which is a wise man and a scholar and a master of philosophy and literature and art and all these kinds of things. In America, a pundit has simply come to mean somebody who's willing to make any prediction imaginable so long as he's not held accountable for it and is willing to change it so long as there's, you know, free shrimp and an open bar involved. And so I'm, I'm, the, I'm an American pundit. You're more of an Indian I'm pundit. a Himalayan master. Yeah, there okay. you go. Um, so when people ask me why Republicans are so much worse at politics than Democrats are, and I mean the sort of messaging nuts and bolts, yeah. expressing fake sincerity better, right, all that kind of stuff that, that Democrats are better at typically, I have this sort of standard answer and I don't mean it in the pejorative sense in which it initially sounds, Republicans are more normal people. And what I mean by that is if you look at your typical Republican politician or even your typical rank-and-file Republican sort of uh, activist, they tend to be this, a certain type, someone who, you know, graduated school, graduated college, got married, worked in a business, a profession, started a business maybe, uh, goes to church, had some kind of success in life. I think of like someone like I don't know, like Ron Johnson, right? You know, Ron Johnson is a good guy and then he gets fed up by watching the news about how badly everything's run and he says, "I'm going to go to Washington and fix it cuz I know how to fix a business." Right. right? And they go to Washington and it turns out that Washington is nothing like a business. And so part of the problem I so I think that on the one hand, I think this is a problem for Republican politicians in the sense that they come from a, a worldview that is kind of a bubble where they think that the world that they grew up in is a normal American and they take that as an example of and they take that experience as their framework for everything and then they come to Washington and realize that Washington not only doesn't work like a business but that their frame of reference is only good for a certain sort of heartland swath of America. but there's a but then there's a broader uh, sort of cultural problem, which is that a lot of the rhetoric and policies of the Republican Party are aimed at that same mindset, right? One of the things you talk a great deal about is earned success, right? This idea that it doesn't have to be money. It's this feeling of being wanted, of being needed, of making a meaningful contribution for your own self, that that you were needed, that, that, that you made a mark in this world that was valued. And Republicans tend to assume that most normal people get that stuff from someplace other than Washington, right? That they, because that's where they get it. They get it from their family. They get it from their church. They get it from their community. And it turns out that there are an enormous number of people in America who don't get their sense of earned success from those things because civil society is so atrophied in large parts of this country that they have this hunger to belong and to feel like they're part of something larger than themselves, but they can't get it from civil society because in their life, they, they don't have any family breakdown or a community breakdown or just the sort of atomization that we see in, in society today or the sort of polarization that we see where people retreat to digital platforms instead of real communities, you know, virtual communities instead of organic communities. And Republicans don't know how to talk to people. Outside of this sort of assumed—I mean, it's not necessarily just bourgeois, but let's call it bourgeois—this assumed bourgeois background. And um, in fact, when Republicans try, people from outside of that shared experience are actually triggered and angered by it. And how is it that conservatives can learn how to talk to? I'm not doing a great job explaining my my question here, but no, the premise is great. But the the the, the you know, I wrote—I recently wrote this column. Um, on one of my big pet peeves, which is, I hate one thingism. Mm-hmm. When people dedicate themselves entirely to one thing, yeah. they're kind of... Monism. Right. They right. are... Yeah. Um, I read the column. It's a great column. I mean, it's, I, and I agree completely. Um, and um, the problem with our politics right now is it is, it is, it is monistic. Right? It, mm-hmm. it, is, it is selling solutions from Washington. And the problem is now conservatives are doing the same thing that right. liberals have been doing for a very long time. Unless you fix the civil society stuff, unless you find avenues of meaning and multiple avenues of belonging at the grassroots, at the ground level, then people are going to continue to look to Washington to solve these things in ways um, that A, Washington can't, and B, that are going to make people even angrier when Washington fails. Yeah, it's, make, it's writing checks that nobody can actually cash. Right. This
1: is, it's not funded. Let me think about a way to, to kind of tie up a lot of what we were just talking about here, what you were just talking about here, in, in a more slightly social science way. But um, the way that I think about it is that, that Republicans, conservatives traditionally they characterize their political life and their policy solutions on the basis of hard-headedness. Mm-hmm. So you talk about Ron Johnson, he's a very hard-headed guy, I mean, This right. has got a 60-slide deck about how we're you know, spending our kids' future, et cetera. Democrats, liberals, they typically define themselves on the basis of their soft-heartedness. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole idea is a lot of empathy, it's uh, what they believe to be quite compassionate, um, they tend to look at the least of these in our society. Now, the problem with that is that you have, think of it as a two by two matrix, heart and head, soft and hard. Mm-hmm. So you can have a hard head and a soft heart or a hard heart and a soft head. and You know, you can right, do all right. of these combinations. You have four combinations of the whole thing. Republicans are hard headed. Democrats are soft-hearted. The the problem is that we tend to be really super aligned between our hearts and our heads. And so Republicans wind up being hard-hearted and Mm hard-headed. And Democrats are soft-hearted and soft-headed. And and the result of that is that Democrats who really want to help people a whole lot, they wind up with with policies that have dramatically unintended secondary consequences that wind up hurting the people they're supposed to help. The classic is the war on poverty, which was really a soft-hearted idea and a really important idea as well. But instead of basing it on hard-headed realities about men and women's need to work and to earn their success and to be part of civil society, it started to substitute for those institutions, which was a soft-headed set of solutions, and it has wound up entrenching poverty and creating dependency, and by the way, spending $22 trillion over the past 50 years. Meanwhile, Republicans, who are really, really hard-headed, have talked about solutions that involve work in exchange for welfare, making sure that people can be productive members of society, um, of the manifestly obvious truth that personal responsibility is every bit as important as economic opportunity, even in in communities, and that that families need to remain intact and we have to create incentives for this, have translated it down to their own hearts and become hard-hearted in the way of saying that when I see a poor person, the poor person is probably lazy. And somebody who's been a victim of discrimination, well, probably they're just whiners. Mm. That's really problematic. Now, now, it gets worse, Jonah, because mm. when you get into a, a really highly dysfunctional political environment, you can wind up not just having hard-hearted, hard-headed Republicans and soft-hearted, soft-headed Democrats. You can wind up having people who are in the, 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 the worst possible quadrant of the matrix who are, who are hard-hearted and soft-headed Mm-hmm. who are sort of discriminatory, or, or they, they, they look at poor people with disdain, and their solutions are basically to just park them and give them more money to make them more dependent and try to forget about them. I mean, it's the kind of things that we often see, even among Republicans today, often in in, in American political life. Where you see people that that don't seem to have very much empathy or compassion for people who are at the margins of the periphery of society and at the same time are advocating solutions that will just take care of them, man. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna reform any entitlements. It's like whatever. That's the, the, the quintessentially worst place we can be in American politics. Where do we wanna be? The answer is we want to be soft-hearted, hard-headed people. We want to look at the people in the periphery of society as our brothers and sisters with a radical solidarity, understanding that there's a true equality of human dignity between the poor and the rich and blacks and whites and people, all of us together. And we we need hard-headed solutions to make sure that we hold everybody to the same standards of decency, to the same standards of responsibility. And that we understand that along with a radical equality of human dignity, you have the equal limitlessness of human potential that's what conservatives where we really should be and and by the way that's where liberals should be too
0: i, I agree with all that in in theory in an abstract and in principle and, and in all of these high i mean my two
1: ways. by two matrix is
0: more what? than is not more than abstract to you <laughs> <laughs> um, but let, let let me um mixture of cynicism devil's advocacy uh, put it a different way to you so the human as, as i write in this book i got coming out as you know um you know, and you know this stuff well. Or, uh, you heard know, it in advance on Amazon, folks. <laughs> <laughs> you know this stuff far better than I do. There's this thing called Dunbar's number, right? right. And Dunbar's number says that the brain is basically wired only to actually know, but somewhere between 150 and 200 people, because that's the evolutionary environment we grew up right. in, right? And that holds fairly constant, constant around the world and in our own lives. And for me, Dunbar's number is another way of sort of putting something that. The way Friedrich Hayek talks about it, where he, he talks about how there's a microcosm and a macrocosm. And then the microcosm is all of the stuff about social solidarity, family solidarity, the source of meaning, the places where we get most of our happiness. And this is the small group or, or platoon. This is where where in uh, uh, evolutionary terms. We grew up. And as I always like to tell people. You know in my own family i'm a communist it's totally from each according to his ability to each according to their need i don't right. charge my daughter for food i don't charge her rent i don't put price tags on you know her clothes um don't no i mean we may get there she's 14 but yeah. um yeah, yeah i mean maybe this is what i've been doing wrong <laughs> <laughs> um but so social solidarity is all that a family is about right mm-hmm. and it is not democratic it doesn't operate on enlightenment principles of the rule of law or any of that kind of stuff. It is, it is essentially a dictatorship, or in my case, a matriarchy. But it is sort of, uh, sort of oligarchic. Yes, and 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 the rules are not based upon sort of enlightenment notions of rights and all that kind of stuff. I get up, you know, as, as 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 a friend of mine likes to say. Um, you know, I'm the yeah. This this family is a dictatorship, and I'm the dick, and um, and I'm the tater. <laughs> <laughs> and so the problem is is that, uh, and that's how it works. My, my dad always used to say the single most corrupting thing in life isn't money, it's friendship, because if a friend, if if someone called you out of the blue at here at AEI and said, "I'll give you ten thousand dollars if you give my kid an internship," you'd say, "Screw you," right? right. If one of your oldest friends called you and said. You know, my kid's had a rough time, but I think he's getting his stuff together, and I could really use some help. You know, he really just needs a fresh start. Do you think you could find him an internship? I'm not saying you'd say yes, but you'd think about it a lot more. By the way, Jonah, there's um. incredibly
1: interesting brain, new brain science research on exactly this. Yeah. That when you have a, the, you use the pecuniary element in a transaction, you process that transaction in a different part Completely of your brain. Yeah. And so what happens is if I say, hey, Jonah, dude, I mean, I, I got to move this weekend. I'm really up against it. C- can you help me move? Right. You'd say, well, oh, I don't want to, but, you know, we're friends and maybe. And if I say, hey, Jonah will you help me move? I'll give you $8. Right. And say, what do you what do you, you, take me for? Right. Literally, I've jumped that decision to a different physical part of your brain and right. you process it in a
0: different way. Anyway, go on. Right. Because we grew up with reciprocity. Yes. We evolved with the reciprocity involved. And and uh, all of politics prior to the enlightenment was about um, gift exchange and alliances mm-hmm. and all of these things that our brains are wired for. And so... The point that Hayek makes is that the microcosm, however figuratively or metaphorically you want to define it, is the world of relationships and actual human faces, right? Of people we know. And the macrocosm is the, what he calls the extended order of contracts, Ooh. property rights, abstract individual liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And
1: this, by the way, is one of the reasons, everything that you're saying is a reason that, that socialism is not scalable. Right. It's an unscalable phenomenon. And the biggest mistake that socialists and leftists in general make is that what's good, at, it's the fallacy of composition, as we economists call it. What, what, what is good for the parts is not necessarily good for the whole. There are many unscalable phenomena. You know, driving 100 miles down the freeway is not scalable to everybody right. driving 100 miles down the freeway. Or, or standing up on your chair at a concert because you can see better. Everybody stands up on their chair. It's socialism that works in the in in the Goldberg household or the Brooks household, and we practice it assiduously. Right. I mean, sixty percent of my family are completely unproductive individuals. Right. And they're right. carried by nothing more than the just the the largesse of the community and right. with in an unquestioned way.
0: You're the maker; they're the taker. Totally, yeah.
1: total takers. Yeah. These kids are. I mean, I could go on and on. I, I'm going to go on dead for weight a while, that's totally total dead weight <laughs> losses, right? <laughs> And and and
0: yet, when we scale up even a little, this thing breaks down. Okay, but this, so this is making my point, right? Yeah. I think that socialism is essentially it, it, it pings our our tribal sweet tooth for tribalism, and right. it's just it's tribalism of class, right? But before you were talking about how we should see every American as a person of dignity and worth, and all these kinds of things, and as a f- Christian. Proposition or religious proposition, I totally agree with that. As a matter of law, I think I agree with that. But as a matter of politics, isn't the same problem of scaling socialism apply to scaling any of these public policies to the federal level? And wouldn't there be more, just more raw happiness and contentment and self-worth and and earned success if we pushed as much of this to the most local level possible because when people actually have orient themselves towards other human beings at a local level who know them and know their personalities they feel more respected they feel more needed and the entire orientation of trying to incorporate the stuff that you're talking about which i think is laudable and all the rest at the federal level may not be may not have the same problems that the unscalability of socialism has, but it also runs into scale problems. I mean, yeah. the, the founders, one of the reasons they set up the country the way they did is they didn't think you could have a country this big run from one place. Yeah, right? absolutely. Look, so, so, Jonah, you'd make an outstanding Catholic.
1: And why? Because you just, just, subsidiarity. Subsidiarity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've, you just articulated a principle, a church principle of subsidiarity. And basically it says, if you can do it at the family level, don't do it at the neighborhood level. If you can do it at the neighborhood level, don't do it at the city level and on to the state and to the federal government. That's absolutely true. But, and the reason And the for galaxy. That, and the galaxy and the, absolutely. The, you know, our intergalactic policies are breaking down and creating a, a nation of takers, <laughs> a planet of takers. You know, the, 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 but the reason for that is not just the unscalability. It's not just the, the fallacy of composition. It's not the mathematical problems with it. It's the dignity problems that come along with this. Right. I mean, that as, as big a problem as anything else, especially for us as conservatives, is to, re, is to realize that there's something profoundly alienating. At, at, at taking your cultural constructs from a faraway capital, you, you really want to, you deserve to be able to figure out what your norms and ideas and, and, and community standards are at the level of your family and your neighborhood and your community. And to say, well, look, if it's not illegal, I guess it's, you know, it's expected. Or, you know, or if we don't have a law for it, I guess it's somehow acceptable. Because we're setting standards in some, some faraway capital, that's a hugely alienating. It's an an, an an unhuman thing to do, which is why the church has gotten involved in this mm-hmm. over the past few hundred years, a- and also it's impractical. Right. It's an extremely impractical thing to do. Okay, so when I'm talking about soft heartedness and hard headedness, this does not necessarily mean that we need federal policymakers who are who are <clears throat> making us. Uh, soft-hearted, hard-headed policies. There's lots of stuff that we shouldn't be doing. I mean, Most of the things we do in Washington, D.C., we actually shouldn't be doing, and and it's leading to this exercise in futility, leading to massive frustration that we're talking about, all these checks you can't cash, leading us back to the beginning of the conversation.
0: Um, Okay. I mean, I, I, I get that, and I think that's a good answer. It still doesn't. There's something unsatisfying. You, you look unsatisfied. You don't look satisfied. I'm not. I'm not entirely satisfied with because I mean, one of the trends. I've you know. I've what had, do you want from me? Uh, let's talk this. To, well, n- talk n- now that you sent me up for my my raise request, like it really <laughs> does. No, but uh, it seems to me. I mean, we are. Uh, how to put this? I've had Ben Sass on here a bunch of times, right? And we talk about. And I've had you. Ben all, Sass and, has been on more than me. He has. Yeah. Originally, we talked about doing one together, but then it turned yeah. out senators are busy and um the people's business and all all of that stuff yeah and plus he goes off and he works concession stands at football stadiums and drives uber and you know there's a it's possible that he's actually really like yeah, he
1: picked bad. me up in an uber x the other day it was weird yeah, <laughs>
0: um all right so i guess the, the, the problem was i still don't see how we it seems to me that we are living at a moment where i mean i, I know you don't want to talk about the President of the United States to so the current predicament of the Republican Party. But we are living at a moment where the the normalcy I ascribed to conservatives earlier, mm-hmm. um, I think for sort of long-term cultural reasons having to do with the nature of the economy and and the declining role of religion in life and all sorts of other external factors. But the same problems that they had cocooned and protected themselves from, the same trends they're starting to go go away, give into. I mean, like well. identity politics. Identity politics, um, looking to Washington as the solution, right? Of of, of you know, I, I consider, and this is something that my uh, my other wise and powerful and attractive boss, Rich Lowry, and I argue about a lot. Rich is a defender of what he calls benign nationalism, and I think that the word benign does an enormous amount of work in the phrase benign nationalism. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like friendly murder. You know, mm-hmm. as long as you put a friendly in front of it, you can make almost anything seem nice. You think it's almost oxymoronic? Almost, not quite. I mean, because I, I do, I, I'm a big believer that all uh, all poisons are determined by the dose. And so a little nationalism, as, as Rich defines it, is a healthy thing because it helps hold polities and societies together and find some common cultural frame of reference and right. language right so you want homeopathic nationalism yeah that's right my favorite my favorite holiday a new thing by the way we have to we're going <laughs> to <laughs> my my favorite holiday is thanksgiving which is not a patriotic holiday it's a nationalistic holiday right. right it predates the founding it is based upon giving thanks to god for these providential things that you you know you should just count yourself lucky for ha- having it's grounded in sort of earth and soil and it's not about it's not about getting anything it's about showing your gratitude and and that's my con- that's the kind of nationalism i like so how is this different than patriotism by the way just because for people listening i know you have a difference between the- yeah so patriotism
1: is creedal okay and patriotism patriotism includes some of these chunks of nationalism but right. in a, the cocktail this is the homeopathic dose of nationalism exists in patriotism right. in the way that you like
0: it that's right, right. that's okay. right if to to take the ingredient nationalism out of the cocktail of patriotism and mm. and grow it on its own, right, uh, in some sort of petri dish, yeah. is a bad idea to me. But to say, I, you know, America's
1: messed up. It's the source of evil in the world, which we heard a, a Senate candidate who almost won the other day say. Right. And at the same time, be talking about blood and soil, effectively takes the patriotism away from the nationalism, leaves nothing but the nationalism. That's right. That's and right. that's the huge, that's a
0: huge problem. That's right. And you know, so one of the, you know, uh, Werner Sombart, this famous German social scientist, right? He asked the famous question, why is there no socialism in America? And the standard answer is because we didn't have a feudal past. And Seymour Martin Lipset got into all this stuff about how this is a part of American exceptionalism is that we just don't, don't orient ourselves towards class and 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 blood and soil in the same way as Europeans do. And we don't have... We're not a particularly nationalistic country, but we're a very patriotic country. And Yeah, I mean, I think
1: that, by the way, I think that there are scientific answers to that, that they go way beyond a lot of the political economy that, 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 that you're getting into now. I mean, the whole idea of, I mean, there's, there's, there's great new research that suggests that, that uh, entrepreneurship sits on the, on the human genome mm-hmm. and, and that you select for it with, with immigration. Mm-hmm. And so you basically make a whole country of of ambitious riffraff, right. That come with nothing and that leave the blood and soil types back home, mm-hmm. and that basically say no blood and soil, no no no, work hard and prosper, right? That's actually so, so we we really have made a country of mutants, right? That where the mutation has become the norm, probably even genetically. I mean, this is a, this is a very profound thing, it also has strong implications of the necessity of
0: continuing to refertilize our nation with immigrants. Well, so it's funny, um. And I've talked about this on a previous podcast, uh, but Seymour Martin Lipset, who is sort of the foremost 20th century scholar of American exceptionalism, he always used to do this riff, which I, I use all the time in speeches, about how at the time of the founding, if you were a royalist or a loyalist, you basically moved to Canada or right. stayed there. And if you were if you were this is my standard line is if you were as Tommy Lee Jones says in Firebirds, if you had your head and your heart wired together for some full- tilt boogie for freedom and justice, you either moved to the 13 colonies or you stayed there. Yeah. And so you have the exact same genetic populations, right? I mean these right. are like purely the same genetic populations essentially at the beginning. Uh, at the beginning, right? right? got to leave out slavery and all the complicated right. issues right there. And you fast forward 200 years. Canada and the United States in the 1970s told their populations that they were going to switch the metric system, and the Canadians were like, "Okay, you know, yeah. as you wish," and the Americans are like, "We're not, we're not, we're not. That's witchcraft. We're like, not doing that." You know, they're, they're, they're cocking their shotguns. It's
1: there's there's this old joke that you know, how do you get. Fifty Canadians out of a pool in five seconds. Huh. You say it's time to get out of the pool now.
0: <laughs> how do you get a uh, How do you get an Episcopalian to look at his shoes? Talk about money. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, where I got off on this is is we are now at a moment where the right, big chunks of the right, starting with you know what, what's interesting, one of the interesting things to me that I think shows up in the data, but the point I'm making is that. The rich amount of social capital that a lot of conservatives generally have, right, mm-hmm. um, of the sort of Ron Johnson type that I was talking about, they're far more immune in the data than Donald Trump to Donald Trump's popularity than the people with less social capital um, and less real capital, right? I mean, so the the base Trump voter was not the Atlanta suburbanite with two college educated people; it was the truck driver who, you know, and I'm not disparaging anybody, but they're just who, you know. Makes less money. Maybe he's been divorced a few times, and the what Trump seems to be doing, or what seems to be happening in the Republican Party, is he's moving what is considered the Republican base to uh, sort of the JD Vance constituency and away from the sort of upper, not even upper middle class, but middle class to upper middle class, educated bourgeois suburbanite, which was traditionally the real Republican base. Trump's loss of popularity is made up almost entirely of those traditional Republicans. Mm -hmm. The margin of victory in Alabama was made up of those traditional Republicans. And this is notwithstanding a lot of the, the liberal popular imagination
1: saying that basically... All of Trumpism is based on racism, and the racism is right. shot through
0: everybody who votes for the Republican. Yeah, no, I, I don't buy that stuff. Yep. I mean, there are, there are yeah. races out there, but a lot okay. of them are just turned out to be Russian robots rather than anything else. But um, on Twitter, but racist, you know, <laughs> <Russian> <laughs> robots. Well, there are a lot of them. <laughs> um, believe me, at some point, you get a little weary of seeing yourself in a uh, in a gas chamber with Donald Trump in an SS uniform in your Twitter feed, which I saw a lot of. You saw a lot. I've, you know, I've even seen that in my Twitter feed. I guess that people are just... But assumed. you put
1: that there, so it's a completely different <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, um, By the way, anybody who disagrees with me on
0: anything, any anything is a Russian bot. That's no. a, uh, you've been talking to John Podoritz, Anyway, so... Um, is he a Russian bot? No, but he thinks that I'm more popular on Twitter and that my podcast is more popular than his because of Russian bots and dog tweets. It gets complicated. But anyway... I get a lot of dog tweets from you. I, well, I know my market. So I, just Customers get, always right. To get to the point, we're living in this moment where... All of the sort of political trends are moving more towards people looking to Washington and to the government to fulfill their sense of meaning and their sense of belonging and their, their definition, their weird, complex definitions of social solidarity wrapped up in things like make America great again and nationalism this orientation, which I think has existed for a very long time on the left in various ways, right? This is basically the story that the left has been telling America, its voters. The Democrats have been telling its voters in one form or another since at least Woodrow Wilson or the New Deal. Now Republicans are telling their version of this kind of narrative, which is your worth, your meaning, your orientation towards this country is going to be satisfied or catered to or pandered to through Washington. Right. And... That leaves someplace like the American Enterprise Institute and people like us. Oh, and there's a reason why this podcast is called the Remnant.
1: Yeah, I got it. Now let me give you something a little bit more encouraging than that. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I understand that. What you're saying is that what's gone on recently in Republican politics is a little bit of
0: if you can't beat them, join them. Right. I understand. In, in the Catholic yeah. Church, despair is a sin. In Judaism, it's a way of life. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's almost a sacrament, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs>
1: uh, so, and again, if you can't beat them, join them is a really, really common thing. That actually is the the philosophy of a bubble. Mm-hmm. That's how bubbles work. You know what we had for the longest time, all the way through 2004, 2005, 2006. People said, "Oh man, we're going in a real estate bubble." This does these these real estate prices, particularly in southern sunny markets, don't reflect underlying prices and values. I'm staying out of this. I'm staying out of this until 2006, 2007, when eh, if you can't beat them, join them. Let's go flip some condos in in, in Naples. And that that actual Rubicon crossed by people who are otherwise sensible, who they said, "I guess it really maybe isn't a bubble," and in any case, I might as well get in on it. That's what ultimately bursts that bubble. Mm. So I actually believe that there's that, that we are on a political bubble in America mm. today. And again, you're the you're the pundit. I'm just the I'm the Himalayan sage, and you know, we're not known for our. Familiarity with current events. But you, you, I actually think this looks, uh, there's a non trivial parallel, set of parallels between what's going on politically in the United States today and what was going on in financial markets in 2006, 2007, and early 2008, where people were running up on a certain way of thinking, saying that you know, maybe it does reflect underlying new political realignments. I, I don't think it does. I think that we're in, in a profound disequilibrium. I think it's going to break and it's going to break ugly. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it's going to do good things. We're going to go back to a thousand flowers blooming and that, you know, the the way that you and I see the world, which is uh, about this equality of human dignity, about limitlessness potential, of potential, about the things that made us conservatives in the first place. Uh, I don't think that we're necessarily going to go back to that place immediately. But I think that the current the current political situation as we see it, where... Virtually everybody is looking to washington d c for their not just their sense of meaning but their in their sense of purpose but rather their sense of sustenance mm-hmm. you know if you 're going to get it you 're going to get it from washington i, I don 't think that 's going to remain i think you, know, you could have leaders that could burst it. I think you could have uh, events that show that it's it 's uh, it's, it's really a false idol, and people tend to turn away then you're going to start to see political realignments that, that wind up pulling the Republican Party away from it. I mean, the zombie apocalypse of the 2018 midterm, who knows what that's going to mean for, for, for politics realigning in this country. I think we're going to look back on this time and say that, that what the Republican Party looked like, and as a consequence, what the mirror of the Democratic Party looked like, I think that was a relatively short-term phenomenon. And we, if I knew it would come next, of course, I would be a hedge fund manager, not a think tank president. And
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. my
1: economic okay. circumstances would be different, but you know, I I just don't think I don't see it in such stark terms. Mm-hmm. I think that as an historical matter in the United States, that we've run up on political bubbles a whole bunch of times, mm. and that the American political equilibrium is different and better than what we typically see today. And that's I think where we, we will ultimately tend.
0: No, I, I think that's right. And, and some of the stuff I was putting out there was for devil's devil's advocacy purposes. Um, but uh, another vatican term by the way i I'm, i i am well aware look i there is there are, there are very catholic the whole thing there are few people of my tribe who have been more public defenders of your 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 do you almost that, say your you people no i was going to say your little bingo organization but um <laughs> anyway uh all right so i know i've kept way too much of your time already but something i've asked i think everybody who's been on this what one thing when you came to washington either shocked you or surprised you the most or would shock or surprise listeners who aren't in Washington. And I'll just give you quick examples of what some other people said. Steve Hayes had something about how this idea that we all just want to go to Georgetown cocktail parties and that's why we say and do what we do. Uh, Yuval Levin talked about how nobody really knows what they're doing and that this idea that there's anybody behind a curtain Planning 10 steps ahead is just foolish. It's right. sort of more chaotic than people realize, and everyone's just trying to sort of move the ball down the field in short little bursts. Ben Sass talked about the shocking amount of nudity in the uh, Senate locker room. Um, so it doesn't have to be a serious thing, or maybe it can be a really serious, disturbing thing. But what, what, hmm. what, what, what things sort of shocked you the most? Well, I, I'm not a Washington
1: guy. I was in Syracuse, and before that, I was all over the... I've never lived That's here one of the reasons before. why I want to ask you Yeah, so I'm, I'm really um, I'm from outside this yeah. place. I haven't been here... I've only been here for the past 10 years since I've worked here. And when I came here, I was really expecting... I mean, I came here as the president of AEI, so immediately I got thrown into this pond into the political pond, into the policy pond. And I thought I was going to find what I always thought about politicians, you know, congressmen, that they're venal, that they're greedy, that they're careerists, that they're ambitious and power-hungry, and, you know, frankly, they're not very smart. Mm-hmm. That's what I really thought I was going to find. And now, you know what? I was wrong in the main. Now, I can find people with those characteristics, but in the main, when I'm talking to members of Congress, they love their country, they're smart, they, sacri- they don't make all right decisions, clearly, and they're constrained in all sorts of ways, some intentional and some not intentional. Mm-hmm. They they, they want to make sacrifices for the country that they live in, and they're making huge sacrifices. I mean, I know this guy, Raul Labrador, he's a yeah. Republican congressman from Idaho. I mean, he's got to, like, take 15 flights to get yeah, home, and yeah. he's got to go home every weekend, and he does it again and again. And yeah. he, he doesn't do it because, you know, that's the best way to make money. On the contrary, he had to put his business on hold and, yeah. or have somebody take over his business. And so I've been just incredibly encouraged at how good the people are on the Hill, that the senators and, and House members are on the Hill. I mean, on the, uh, by the way, Democrats and Republicans. I disagree with a lot of the Democrats. I disagree with a lot of Republicans at this, <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Who the, it's, we're the remnant after yeah. all. Um, it's it amazes me though the quality of these people the the depth of their spirit the um, the 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 extent to which they are willing to give for their country and and it's it's service it's ser- way more than I thought before and I appreciate that more than I thought I was going to and I admire them really a lot and when you talk about Ben sass I, I think the guy is just I think he's great yeah. I think he's admirable. I think he's upstanding. I think he's he could be doing almost anything he wants to be doing, and he wants to be doing this right now. He's not like, oh boy, sure am lucky, or I, I, it feeds my ego somehow to be a U.S. senator. He's doing it because he loves America, and and I think that's actually worthy of our praise. One more thing, too, by the way, mm-hmm. this is the Washington D.C. Despite what people think, who are listening to us, you know, outside of the Beltway who like to dump on DC, it's an unbelievably high-quality place. It's just the, the quality of things here is so incredibly high. When I first came here from Syracuse and I was visiting, deciding whether or not to take this job at AEI, I went into a restaurant and uh, like a fast food place, takeout place, like an Indian takeout place, and there was nobody behind the counter. And for a long time, it was just me and this woman standing there and she finally she turns around and she says, do you think there's a really bad hostage situation? In the <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, that sophistication of joke with a complete stranger is something you'd never see or you'd never hear in Syracuse. <laughs> it just never <laughs> occurred to anybody. And I realize that that's probably not the best example of high quality and humanity, but it, it, it endeared me to the place, and that's one of the main reasons I moved here.
0: Well, let it fall to me that I think that the incredibly upstanding and, and, and intellectually sophisticated people, Syracuse, are perfectly capable of making hostage jokes. And if they're listening out there... Uh, Vote for Jonah Goldberg for Congress <laughs> from Syracuse. <laughs> Mayor um, of Syracuse. And um, now about that race. No, we, we, we'll, we'll get to that off, 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 off air. By the way, congratulations on the success of this podcast. Well, thank you. Uh,
1: Bouncing around among the top podcasts, yeah, which is fantastic. We're, we're, do, we're doing well. Um, Just shows that the remnant maybe not be might not be such a remnant, Jonah. It's possible. You might have to change it to the you know the majority.
0: Yeah, I would love for the remnant to end up being an ironic title. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Um, but no, it's 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 going better than I thought it would. I'm not as self conscious about it as I thought I'd be, and I still think there's something really weirdly, off-puttingly narcissistic about it, but... So what's your point? <laughs> but I'm, I know, I'm, I guess I'm kind of digging it, and um, it's doing better than I thought it would. I, we've got a lot of feedback from people, that I need to stop talking about how I don't know what I'm doing, but I still feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And what's funny is, like, poor Jack Butler, who's not on a mic right now, but he's sitting over there in his ball with his ball gag and his leather onesie, and he is in charge of uh, um, putting this thing together. And... It's been a steep learning curve for him just with like how to do the the, move the things around. And it's very weird that it's already like this top 100, you know, top 50 podcast most days of the week. And, you know, what's the
1: secret? What do you think is actually why do you think it is?
0: Well, I've read you can't
1: l- diagnose your own success, but still. I've read a try.
0: lot of Bigfoot erotica on this podcast, and <laughs> it turns out- I don't out- even
1: know what that is, but I heard it is a thing podcast. It is a podcast.
0: thing. I, it came up simply because I was talking to Andy Ferguson in one of the most popular podcasts we've done because Andy Ferguson, and and I don't even remember the context of it, but I said at some point, you know, people are into weird things. Like Bigfoot erotica, and he didn't believe me that it was real. And then other people like emailed me, and that's not real. You mean like a- Sasquatch erotica. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not, not, I'm sure there is, you know, what is it? Rule 43? Rule 44. Rule 34. Uh, in his ball gag, Jack is holding up fingers so I could figure out what, the, what I'm supposed to call it. Rule 34 is oh. that <laughs> if there's uh, it's something along the lines of if you can think of a thing, there's porn for it. And, uh. um, but so yeah, there may be just large lower, you know, large-footed person erotica, but that's right. not what I'm talking about. There's actually a thing called you know bigfoot erotica. If you go into Amazon, there's lots of. It. And so we read some tasteful bits on here, and it became a thing. It's very strange. And then last week we did uh, Donald Trump erotica, which is was which was a little too satirical for my light my taste. And um, that exists too. That it all exists. And so I yeah. just found. Um, uh, it's disturbing, a, you know. I have to yeah. say, it's it's you, you find out about the world. You could almost um, come up with almost any proper noun you can think of and put the word erotica after it, and you'll find something on Amazon for it. There's <laughs> so a community. Um, These are the little platoons. <laughs> well, no, so but, okay, this, I mean, I know we're I know we're just doing BS chitchat here, you no, know, but this is a real problem that the internet creates in in our country, which is that in the old days, right prior to the internet. If you were, let's say a pedophile, right? Very difficult to meet and form a community with another pedophile. Right. right. I mean, it's just like it's a hard conversation to bring up at the church social. It's, you know, you know, it's 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 hard it's hard to sort of test someone to see if they're into it too. And uh doesn't mean there weren't pedophiles and stuff, but it was They were scattered around the society. They were basically in the shadows. And now, because of the Internet, forget pedophilia, because we still do a pretty good job of keeping them at bay. But any creepy, weird thing from the alt-right to, you know, whatever, you can find people who will affirm, support and magnify your commitment to something, because all of a sudden you, re- you feel like you right. are part of something. It's
1: there are two things going on: connectivity and anonymity. Right. Those are the two things. When you put those two things together, you get really super. You get uh, communities forming that you don't want to form.
0: Right. That's the idea. And and so so much of our politics these days is driven by the fact that you can. If I went on Meet the Press and started screaming at Chuck Todd. Um, about his height or about the Miami Dolphins or about how, whatever, it doesn't matter. I could very easily get an enormous amount of positive enforcement from the Internet, right, and from from the public. And it allows people like Milo and other people basically uh, to create their own armies of supporters because there is almost no standard that won't in this sort of populist moment that won't give you positive reinforcement. And- so, so,
1: answer, so, ask, so, answer me this before we before we sign off, because I, I want—I just wanted your, your views on this. I, I, as I write for the New York Times frequently, uh-huh. and uh, when I first started, people would say, "Don't read your comments." Why? Because you know, the New York Times—I'm a conservative—I right. could write a column called "I Love Puppies," and it would be denounced totally oh, yeah. in the comment section. How much of the vitriol from the internet, not just from Twitter, but just from every part of the internet, because there's good research right now that shows that uh, sociopathy is predicted by by, uh, uh, anonymous internet use. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for any ladies listening, if they're like any ladies listening, which I doubt to this podcast, but there are some that if you're out on a first date, Uh just slip in as a question, you know, do you ever comment anonymously on articles you see on the internet? And if they say yes, that's like a red flag that you're with a narcissist and, and a Machiavellian type, and uh-huh. you should probably not date that person, basically. I mean, I got the data. I mean, actually... Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Just... Okay. So, so to what extent do you believe that we need stronger norms, not necessarily laws, because this gets into constitutional issues, but norms that, that enforce uh, identity? In other words, if you were the New York Times, would you say you can't comment unless you put your name and your email address? Right. To, or, or for that matter, you shouldn't be able to drive unless you put your name and your, in your religious congregation on the back of your, on your bumper sticker. Right. And just to try to improve
0: public life because when people are anonymous, they act worse. Well, so this, is, so this gets to something we were talking about earlier, this microcosm versus macrocosm problem, right? In the microcosm, everybody knows who you are. And you are held to a certain, you know, in a small town, it's very difficult to be a complete ass because right. people know who you are. People right. work with you. Your parents know. Your wife knows, whatever, you know. Well, people went to cities in the first place. Right. To it's, blend in. That's but, where the original phrase city air makes you free comes from, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. And because it was possible to be anonymous. In
1: Internet that. air makes you completely free. Yeah. And
0: air makes you an ass, too, sometimes. And so <laughs> it's it's... And, and at National Review Online, you know, uh, we have gone around the horn and had these debates about comments for 20 years now. And I've always been an advocate that you had to register. You don't necessarily publicly have to have your name out there. But we have we to know who you are. We need to know who you are in some abstract
1: sense, right? Because this will change behavior. It we change, know this a as, as a of matter behavior. of fact. Right. Social
0: science tells us this. And right. Yeah. And, I, and it's funny. I think... There were, at the beginning of the internet, and as you know, in internet years on Methuselah, um, at the beginning of the internet, there was much more churn in all this kind of stuff. You know, I used to get two, three hundred emails a day, thoughtful feedback from people. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful. And um, that was before we had comment sections. It was when the internet, people didn't know exactly how it worked and that you could have this relationship with writers. It was all very intimate. And I always remember, I think I might have told you this, when I first started writing my syndicated column... You know, I get a lot of anti-Semitic email. I get a lot of Jeffrey Goldberg's anti-Semitic email, and he gets a lot of mine. But, um... Whose is better? Uh That's a good question. We should actually yeah, compare yeah. notes at some point. But I would, um, I used to respond to a lot of it. I just, you know, completely ignore it now. But when back in the old days when I would get it, one of the things I would always say, you know, I, I, I would engage, and sometimes I would try to shame people. Yeah. And I would write, you know, God is watching you, mm-hmm. Um. um... Uh, or, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself, or whatever, and it was amazing. I would say about 10, 15 times in the first couple years during this churn of, you know, like 99, 2000, 2001, I would hear from uh, 10 or 15 people. I mean, I got hundreds of anti-Semitic emails, but I would hear from 10 or 15 people who would say, oh my God, I am so embarrassed. I had no idea you were going to read this, and I just, I'm, I'm, so, I, I'm so ashamed of myself. I'm, and it was so fascinating to hear from people who, as long as they thought it was just putting a note in a bottle and throwing it out in the ocean kind of thing, they were fine with talking about how I should have died in an oven or I'm a kike or all this yeah, kind of stuff. totally. But the second they thought they were actually making a, connecting with another human being, they were mortified for what they did. Absolutely. There's this great study that shows this
1: from... It's an early study. There's a guy named Richard LaPierre, the sociologist at Stanford, 1934. He's this foundational father of this stuff. He, it was a time of an unbelievable uh, racial discrimination against Chinese Americans all across the sure. West Coast in the United States. And he goes out with this Chinese American couple. They were completely American, no accent. They'd been born in the United States. This Chinese American couple. And he goes to, on a 10,000 mile road trip, He visits 250 establishments, hotels, motels, restaurants. Uh, They're served in 249 of them. And in half of the cases, they got above-average service, Mm. as judged by Richard LaPierre. Gets back to Stanford University, and here's the second part of the experiment. He calls all 250 establishments asking if they would serve Chinese Americans, and the answer was no in 92% of the cases. (laughs) So so what does this prove? That when you have an actual identity, which is your name and your face, that, that people treat you better. When your identity, on the other hand, is nothing but your racial group or your political group right. or your religious group, they're going to treat you worse. That's the problem with identity politics because right. identity politics is not about identity Identity politics is about anonymity right. fundamentally. And, a, and a abstracting people's identity into some... Exactly right. ...category, Exactly right. right. So your true identity is your humanity, which right. is the really important thing. And the only way that you can do that is by obliterating anonymity and taking ownership for the true identity of the person that you really are.
0: Yeah. So I, I agree with you about the norm thing. I mean, there are specific cases where you can see why anonymity is required. You know, some, some lawyer or somebody who's, you know, there's, there have been lots of Twitter accounts that are anonymous because they're people who are will lose their job, and you can see some of that stuff. But as a general proposition, I think anonymity is a bad idea because, in part, I've I've told this to young writers and people who've said, oh, I want to start a blog, back when there were a lot of blogs, but I need to do it anonymously. And I said, you know, part of the problem with, and this is the long trend, which I guess is backed up by all the research you're talking about, anonymity tends to make you more of an ass because... You have less responsibility for the things that you said. You feel like no one can actually lay a glove on you personally, yeah. so you start attacking people more personally, knowing that you're safe behind this duck blind, as it were. Yeah, and so I agree with that in principle. Um, and every libertarian is now going to write you an email
1: anonymously. Yeah, well,
0: but no, but <laughs> but no, look, I mean, I think you're right about the I mean. The, the law part is a very complicated thing. Yeah, and that's not the, what I'm talking right. about because the mo- the, the life
1: in life is not the law. The life and life is a set of norms and customs that we set around our behavior. And and we've basically said that anonymous activity on the internet is socially acceptable. And that, it seems to me, is something we really need to question.
0: Yeah. Just very hard to police. I mean, I think the way to police it has to be, again, it's a subsidiarity argument. It has to be like National Review, the way we tried to do it was you have to be registered through us or you have to register through Facebook so people know who you Mm -hmm. are. And that's one solution, right I, mean, I could see the New York Times, which has uh, scale issues that we don't have, has to come up with some other thing. but I think it's something perfectly fine to encourage institutions to have and if people get really upset about the idea that they're not all they're not allowed to post you know comments anonymously on somebody's private website you know too bad too bad you know that yeah. sucks for you you know I mean if this is if, if this is depriving you of some joy in first place. yeah exactly yeah. no I think that's right I think that's right. Well, anyway, Arthur, I didn't mean to go
1: off on another tangent there, but... It was good. Was and, it? you know, the good thing about a podcast, it has no logical or
0: necessary end time because we don't have to go to advertisements or to breaks. That's right. Or if we do the advertisements, we can just sort of drop them in whenever we want. So, let me tell you about tripping.com. No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, Arthur, thanks so much. I hope you'll be back. I Thank hope you, Joe. Uh...
1: Thanks. Can- continue great luck with your podcast. It's, it's, uh, we're, all, we're all big listeners. We're all big fans,
0: as are all intelligent people yeah, in America I mean, today. I'm... I'm I, a, I'm sick of your lies, and B, <laughs> I come from a religious faith that, that considers all compliments bad luck. So, uh, <laughs> there's that. But have a wonderful, happy Christmas. Merry Thank Christmas.
1: You. Thank you very much. Are you celebrating Hanukkah?
0: Tonight is the la- we We're recording this on the last night of Hanukkah. Yeah. Um, I can reveal that my daughter's big gift is a massive gift card to an art supply store because she's a crazy art supply fan. Fantastic. And then we're going off to Hawaii to celebrate Christmas with my wife's family, um, in uh, a couple days, so it's, it's I hope bad. you.
1: I hope it's fantastic, and uh, we we'll look forward to a 2018 that was um, even better than 2017. Certainly, it will be at the American Enterprise Institute, and uh, the fortunes of the
0: of the remnant will only grow. Yeah, well, that's way, way to set a, a nice low bar for your annual report next year. Better than 2017. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jonah. Okay, so my, my thanks again to Arthur Brooks for being here. There are a bunch of questions that I, when I planned on doing this, I meant to get to and I didn't. I know for a fact that he actually wanted to correct the record that he is not a full vegan, as we called him um, on last week's episode of The Remnant. I also apparently referred to the famous Princeton, quote-unquote, ethicist, pro-eugenics, pro-infanticide, pro-animal rights Philosopher uh, Peter Singer as Paul Singer, who's in fact a billionaire um, and donor to many good conservative causes. And while I'm not exactly a uh, lickspittle to my the corporate fat cats who fund the various institutions that um, make up the various institutions on the right. I see no reason why I should inadvertently suggest that Paul Singer is guilty of favoring infanticide. So I apologize for having said that last week. As I said, I'm heading off to uh, Hawaii in a couple days. my I know it sounds super glamorous, and I'm delighted to be going. The reason why I'm going to Hawaii is that Hawaii happens, happens to be the closest warm beach to Fairbanks, Alaska. Um, which is where my wife and her family are from. And so there's a long history of sort of people snowbirding or whatever you call it, back and forth from Alaska to Hawaii. And we're going to spend uh, Christmas with my wife's family or big chunks of it. My wife has a big family out there. And it does remind me of an important uh, advertiser to this place, uh, tripping.com. They are actually not paying for this advertisement this week, but they are going to be back in 2018, and, and it would be great if we could still get our, uh, the number of referrals from this podcast into the record by the end of the year. So I figured I would might as well give them another plug. And one of the reasons why I thought it would make sense is that, you know, when I go to Hawaii, we have a house. We stay in a house. We don't rent this one. It actually belongs collectively to my wife's family, um, but it's sort of the same principle. It's just a much more relaxing thing to do. Uh, stay in a big house where you can cook big family meals together. You can do things you know, with your extended family in ways that you really can't at a hotel. Um, you can cram all sorts of kids into a single room and make them watch a movie or play a game if it's raining. Um, you can throw them all into a pool that you own yourself that may not have a um, floating Babe Ruth candy bar in it um, that you can't identify. And um, so that's what tripping does. Tripping lets you look across all of the various sites that let you do vacation rentals um, and compare uh, prices and, and compare offers um, in a way that uh, saves you an enormous amount of time and money. With Tripping.com, OneSearch lets you filter, compare, and sort over 10 million available properties on trusted sites like VRBO, TripAdvisor, Booking.com, and others. Don't wonder if, you get, if you're getting the best deal. You'll save an average of 18% per night by booking your vacation with Tripping.com. Um, so don't forget, if you want to save time and money while booking the perfect vacation rental for your next trip, head to tripping.com slash dingo today. That's the really important part. You got to put in the Remnant's special uh, code word, which is dingo. So it's tripping, T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G dot com forward slash dingo. Tripping com forward slash dingo. And speaking of the dingo, one of the most consistent pieces of criticism we get about um, the remnant is I don't do enough canine updates. Uh, and so since this week I am not in fact doing, uh, I don't know that whether or not I'm going to do my Goldberg File newsletter, I will give you a advanced tip-off of the canine update because we had quite a bit of drama yesterday morning. First of all, uh, because we... We've decided we're going to sell the SUV that we have because we're ruining it by by using it as a dog conveyance vehicle. We've got it super detailed, and we're not letting dogs in it until we sell it. And we haven't been able to buy a replacement for it. So in the morning, rather than drive to the woods of the dog park, which is my normal ritual, instead I've been doing neighborhood walks. And what that usually means is Zoe, the Carolina dog, a.k.a. the American Dingo, has to be on a leash. And I have one of those big, long extendo leashes because Zoe will run behind people's houses chasing rabbits, it'll get into fights with other dogs that uh, she believes don't belong in her neighborhood, and she will just get into all sorts of mischief. And if she does find a rabbit, she will or a squirrel, she will often chase it even into traffic. So she just her killer instincts need to be restrained. And Pippa actually listens to orders quite well, and um, uh, all she needs is to chase a tennis ball. And so she gets to be off-leash, and Zoe gets to be on-leash. Anyway, on uh, Monday morning, we're walking up uh, Side Street, heading home, and I let Zoe chase after squirrels when she's on the leash because I figure she can't catch them. Well, she caught one. And I hate this. I mean, I, people think it's funny, and, you know, D.C. is wildly overpopulated with squirrels, but I actually hate watching cute things kill other cute things, and it really bums me out. So anyway, but she caught a squirrel, she's fast. I know it doesn't look like it. And she's shaking it. The squirrel's letting out a terrible sound. And I yank Zoe away, and the squirrel breaks free. So now Zoe's furious at me for causing her to, to drop her prey. And Pippa, all of a sudden, becomes like this different dog. You know, Pippa's actually an English Springer Spaniel. Comes from very good sort of breeder My father-in-law actually used her for quail hunting before we took her back, took her from him, and so she thinks it's her job to start chasing this poor limping squirrel who's hiding under a car. Zoe's freaking out; she's on her hind legs, pulling against the leash, and she, and so Pippa grabs the squirrel, and I'm yelling now at Pippa: "Drop it! Drop it! Drop it!" You know, hopefully, you know, leave it alone. The squirrel's kind of playing dead, and poor Pippa looks at me like. I don't know how this is all supposed to work. And for the first time I've ever noticed, she points at the squirrel. She lifts up one paw and, like, aims it at the squirrel. And is like, Dad, look, I've, I've got your, your squirrel here. I know it's not a quail, but this is, you know, your squirrel. And Zoe's like, let me have my squirrel. And I'm screaming at these dogs. And Pippa doesn't understand why I'm not, like, congratulating her. And every time the squirrel thinks the coast is clear to get up, she you know, pip up, then sort of holds it down with her paw and then points at it again for me. And it was such a dramatic, weird spectacle, and not the way I wanted to start my week. And this was after earlier that morning. this is like at 6:45 that morning um, on Monday. I'm in well, some you know cul-de-sac side street in my neighborhood, and some teenage girl comes out of her house, and another teenager is driving a car, and I guess they're carpooling, and she's picking up her friend. And the girl opens the passenger side door and Pippa tries to get in the car. And so there's like, like, Zoe, you could not kidnap that dog because she's got very strong stranger danger drives. But Pippa is just like, oh, these seem like nice people. They're going on a car ride. Maybe they're going to the park. And she tries to get in the car. I'm like, no, Pippa, you can't go with them. So anyway, it's a lot of drama for a Monday morning. And and I figured I would at least share that with you guys. Uh, Jack? Uh, now that you've had the ball gag out of your mouth, is there anything else that we need to talk about?
2: Uh, well, first I just want to say that I had not actually heard any of this dog drama before you said uh-huh. it here, and man, that's intense. Yeah, it was like a scene from The Fox and the Hound, or something. Um, or perhaps a, like a, 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 either a Disney version of The Revenant, or like the Revenant version of a Disney movie.
0: Yeah, no, it was it was grim, and I feel really bad because I'm sure the squirrel did not have. You know, I mean, Zoe heard it bad and I probably should have let her keep it to put it out of its misery. And but I just didn't the whole scene, I just didn't want to be involved in. And it was just bad. And um, and if I let Zoe keep it, she would try to bring it home. And if you ever tried to get a squirrel out of Zoe's mouth, it's not fun. But at this point, I don't know. I mean, she's probably into low double digits of squirrel kills, which is if people who have dogs in squirrel areas know squirrels are actually pretty hard to catch. And I just don't like any, my daughter hates any talk of animals killing animals. She thinks that they all border, you know, just order food from like Uber Eats or something. And, the, um, and so it just, it was an ugly scene. Um, oh, so don't, uh, listeners? we are so full on music right now that we are going to take a breathing period as we still try to figure out what we're going to do for our permanent music. So probably shouldn't send us any new music right now um, until we figure out what we're going to do next. But if you have other listener feedback or comments, you can send them to uh, the Pod at gmail.com. We also have a uh, Twitter account that we don't really know what to do with quite yet. Jack, this was sort of your idea, and I said yes.
2: Yeah, because I noticed that the uh, Weekly Substandard has a Twitter handle for its podcast. So, I mean, if that had one, I mean, I could have responded by thinking – well, if they have one, then clearly we shouldn't have one. Because yeah, I mean, we, we've we've achieved all of the success, much more success than they have without one. But
0: yeah, I mean, that, it, 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 logic could go either way. Yeah, you know? so
2: I I just sort of made an arbitrary decision, that, which you signed off on. So,
0: but now they're coming after you or something.
2: Uh, yeah the 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 uh, the weekly substandard has this weird. I think they call it a mega thread that I wandered into, and in now. Uh-huh. Or the excuse me, the podcast's Twitter account, which I'm I'm going. I I choose to believe it's self aware. It's uh-huh. not me running it. It's just the it's a it's a Twitter account that's sentient now, passed the Turing test. Okay. Uh, so just putting that out there for people who see what it's saying on Twitter. It's 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 purely uh, a sentient creation, accidental, Ultron, Skynet, what what have you. Uh, but yeah, I've wandered into the mega thread and I I don't know what to do. Uh, I'm probably going to extricate myself from that because it just seems like a very strange place.
0: Yeah, that sounds like it. Okay, so uh, the Twitter account is Jonah Remnant, or at Jonah Remnant, I should say. And thanks to everybody for tuning in. We are going to try to have another podcast next week. We're going to record it tomorrow, um, which is Wednesday. Uh, I'm not exactly sure um, exactly what's going to go on there. It's it's complicated, lots of moving parts. But I don't think I'm going to be recording one in Hawaii because I mean, I'll be in Hawaii. So Merry Christmas to everybody. Happy New Year if we don't do one for next week. And thanks again for listening in.